have mercy on me. But they told him to be quiet, yet he kept shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus said, call him over here. What do you want me to do for you? That's a blank check. He said, I just want to see. I just want to see. In 2010, a member of our congregation passed quietly away while she was home with her family. She was 63 years old. The funeral was here in this auditorium. I was part of it. We told stories about her life, her joyful spirit, her love of people, the stuff she wrote in the scriptures. But what everybody remembers were the last few hours she was alive. While lying in her bed with her family gathered around her, unresponsive, mostly unconscious, there was a moment while her husband standing at the foot of the bed when she opened her eyes and to hear her husband say it, she looked off into a space that was right next to us. She was not looking at us. And then after a pause, she just said, I never knew. She went unconscious. A few moments later, she opened her eyes a second time and looked back into that space and said, I have so much to learn. And this time, she smiled. What did she see? In that space, right next to everyone's head. And how much of that could we see now? If for a moment we could put down the assumptions and the constraints of a secular age and believe again that the world is enchanted by the presence of God, if we could learn to put our own lives in a biblical narrative, not the one that was taught to us in the schools. And if we could somehow learn to see through the eyes of our heart, not just in the eyes of our head, how much of what she never knew would we know? How much of what she has to learn could we learn before we leave? We have an assumption that death is a moment that disrupts life, separating the life to come from this life. We believe that after we die, we will open our eyes, in a sense, wake up in another world, and everything will be brand new. Everything will be like nothing we have ever seen before. An entirely new reality. All sins forgiven, all the past forgotten, it will be like starting over. What if we're wrong? I believe that part of this life continues into the next one which is another way of saying that part of the next life 
is already embedded in this one. It is all around us. Heaven may not be up. It may be over in another dimension. Real time happening right now alongside the world you presently sit in. I have been with many people in the last few hours of their life. Sometimes when they actually stop living, there is no moment in a person's life that is more holy than that one, whoever they are. Recently, I read the story by Gary Black, who was a student of Dallas Willard. For those of you not familiar with Dallas, he was an aging, really intelligent, very godly scholar and saint, died at about 78 years old out in Southern California. He taught for more than 30 years philosophy in USC in Southern California. He was an intellectual heavyweight. He was not given to fanciful visions or dreams. He was intellectual. I read the last few hours of Dallas's life, and what I read shocked me. I, I, I don't know if this feels right to me or not, but the student, Gary Black, said, when I went to his house that night, the night he ended up dying, I put my cell phone on recorder and set it next to his bed. I wanted to record everything that he said. Black writes, it was about 1.30 in the morning when I noticed his breathing became very faint. I checked his pulse. It was slowing. Then Dallas said, I need to tell you what's happening so you can be prepared. Now remember, his eyes are open. He is fully alert, fully in this world. He said that his eyes were being opened and that he was seeing things, understanding what Paul meant when he said the perishable self was being removed and the imperishable self was being put on. He said he was going through a hallway that connects this world to the next, that there was so much for him to learn that it was captivating his mind. I asked, what do you see? It isn't hard, he said. It isn't a strain now to believe what Jesus said. He that keeps my word will never taste death. So you're beginning to believe more strongly now than you did before? Like I mean about the cloud of witnesses, that it's somehow more believable now than it was before? Well, yes. And all that Paul had in mind when he said, We've been raised up with Christ to seek those things that are above. The things that are above are becoming more a reality now. Now I can see that there is so much more to that. So, so you're thinking about what is more and more becoming a reality to you? Well, it's been there all along but I'm seeing it more clearly. And then he smiled. Is God speaking to you now? I asked. 
Well, yes, I think so. But this is not new. I just have a firmer grasp of it now. So is it almost like you haven't been surprised, but you've been surprised? He said, no, I haven't been surprised. But I am deeply gratified. And I am amazed that I haven't seen this before. So I asked you, you feel like scales falling from your eyes? He said, I, I wouldn't, that's too strong. <laughs> it's like when you've gone to the doctor that you haven't seen for years and you suddenly realize how bad your vision was before that. Black concludes by saying, the pain was becoming stronger now. I turned off the recorder and adjusted his covers. We both sensed he was nearing the end. He began to give me final instructions. I held his hand. I leaned in close and asked if I could tell him goodbye. He smiled and nodded yes. I told him how much I loved him. I thanked him for giving me the gift of love and confidence. I thanked him for helping me to become a better man. I told him he was a hero to me, and when I said it, he shook his head from side to side and just said, no, Jesus is our hero. I kissed him on the forehead and he closed his eyes to sleep. I'm intrigued by what he saw in the hallway. I'm amazed that I haven't seen it before. Have you been to a movie where you've watched the whole movie and tried to figure out who did it and you get to the end of the movie and all of a sudden they start showing who did it and they take you back in the movie and they show you scene after scene in slow motion and close up. We just saw the commuter and they did that a little bit at the end. They showed you some scenes that you'd already seen and you almost want to say, man, yeah, I was looking right at it, man. I should have noticed that, but I didn't notice that. I'm amazed that I didn't see that by now. I believe that when you and I get into that last few hours of our life, if we do it right, we will have a firmer grasp of things. We will see things more vividly, more tangibly, but virtually nothing will be new. I believe a lot of this life is carried into the next. Things will weigh differently. Things I thought were heavy and urgent and pressing right now will be lighter then. And things that I virtually missed today will be really heavy then, but the same realities will be there. I believe that when I open my eyes in that hallway between earth and heaven, I will see the same Jesus that I see today, only more vividly. Not a new or different Jesus. Just a better picture of the Jesus I always knew. And then (laughs) I will know that there is no better way to describe him than the way he is described in scripture. Paul is not trying to get me to believe 
anything. He is simply describing reality. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, things visible and invisible, all rulers and authorities and powers were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. <laughs> you just can't say it any better than that. Paul is describing a reality. Here's my question. How much you think about that these days? How many conversations do you have these days about things that will be heavy on your mind in those days? I have no trouble admitting I'm blind. No trouble. I was raised like some of you in the public schools and they told me how this world works and I believed them, all of it. I believed that science was the way to learn or know just about anything. What I didn't know is that there are things on the tree of knowledge that are so high and so important you can't know these things unless somebody tells you, and you have to believe them. You can go get your degrees, and you should. You should do postgraduate work, and you will climb another limb. But you will never reach the top. Someone's just got to pick that for you and tell you, and you'll have to believe it. Like you, I was taught the other way. And then one day, Jesus opened my eyes. And when he did, I saw the world is on fire with the presence of God. All of the time, I'm asking myself this week, how do I put myself in a position to see that? You know, I'm reading stories in the New Testament about how people get their eyes open. What I noticed is every time it happens, Jesus does it, not somebody else. This is not something that you can condition yourself into doing. That might help, but that will not get you all the way home. Jesus has to do something only Jesus can do. But what I noticed is, in every instance, the people who are blind are not doing nothing. They're all aware they're blind, and they all care. They all want to see a lot more than I did, and they have put themselves in a position for Jesus to see them. So I'm asking myself, is there a way to get myself in a position so I can see the things that are all around me that I'm amazed I haven't? Is there a way to see some of what I will see more vividly 
then. I went back to John chapter 9, and I noticed this really is the question. After the man was healed of his blindness, he went back to the village, and his friends asked him, aren't you the guy that used to sit and beg? How did he open your eyes? That's verse 10. He will then go before the Pharisees, and they will ask the same question. How is it that your eyes were opened? That's verse 15. They will then call in his parents and say, is this son the one that was born blind? Is this really your son? Because if it is, how is it he can now see? That's verse 19. When he goes back to see the Pharisees a second time, they look at him and say, so who did this to you? And how did he open your eyes? That's verse 26. Four times in this story, they want to know, how did he open your eyes? And as I read it again and again, I got thinking, you know, if I can answer this question, maybe I will be closer to having Jesus open my eyes. So here's what I noticed. It's not one long story. It's one short story four times. It's not 41 verses long. It's about six or eight verses long four times. It's a cycle. There's a pattern, and it occurs again and again and again, and it goes something like this. God performs an act in broad daylight that everyone can see, but the moment he does this action, people are confused. They can't figure out what happened. And from this moment, they flop in one of two directions. Some of them are open to what has just happened, and they want to know more, and they start asking good questions, and others have already developed assumptions which are like categories that do not allow God to work inside of their theological matchbox. So there's an act in broad daylight that everyone is looking at. But not everyone can perceive what just happened. Isaiah said, seeing, they will not perceive. He was dead on. In the midst of their confusion, someone is always testifying. I don't know if he's a sinner or not. One thing I do know, once I was blind, now I can see. Translated, dude, deal with that. Right? Someone is bearing witness to the act that God has done, even if there is no category for it. And when this person bears witness, they always believe a little bit more. Read the story in slow motion and you will watch the blind man's estimation of Jesus get higher and higher. Who did this? It was this man they called Jesus. Who did this? Who do you say he is? <laughs> He's a prophet. If this man were not from God, he could not have done these things. By the end of the story, he says, 
tell me who he is so that I may believe. And he bows down. You see what he is doing? Every time he says it, he testifies or bears witness to it, he believes a little more strongly. So that raises the question then of habits. Are you good? Are you still with me? I'm going as fast as I can. I'm asking, what can I do to help me perceive the activity of God in this world? And what can I do to better bear witness to it? Because I think that will get the flywheel going. First, I have to become more proficient in Scripture. I do not know the Scriptures well enough. I had a professor that um, taught me years ago when I was in IWU. He said, my wife and I play a game. She opens the Bible and reads from anywhere she wants, and I am to tell her within a chapter of where she's at. I said, that's impossible. He said, you should try it. I said, I should not. <laughs> I waited till we were married five years, and one day on a long drive, I said, let's do something uh, my professor said we should do. You read, and I'll tell you where you're at. And she would read. I said, stop, anywhere in the New Testament. <laughs> I know some of you Old Testament guys are like, <laughs> said, make this easy. Anywhere from Matthew to Revelation, go for it. And she would read, and I would take shots at it, and I'd miss it. And we'd do it again and again. By the time we did it four or five years, I could always get within a chapter, anywhere in the New Testament. I could usually get within two or three verses. I thought I was fluent in Scripture. I knew nothing. We have this thing that because we can say something, we think we know it. So I thought if I could memorize it and just cite it, I knew it. I knew nothing. I have to become more proficient in Scripture so it becomes my default language. So it becomes the way that I describe the news. It's how I interpret the world. They tell me when somebody is proficient in a foreign language, they no longer have to translate. Hubert Harriman was born in Bolivia. Look, he's as white Anglo as I am. But because he was born in Bolivia, he speaks Spanish better than some Bolivians. When he goes down to Bolivia and starts speaking Spanish, the Bolivians think he's Bolivian, except for his face. They say, we don't even hear the accent. He's that fluent. When they're speaking Spanish, he doesn't have to translate in his mind and say, well, what is he trying to say? He just lives in a Spanish world. And when I'm talking to him in English, he will sometimes borrow metaphors from the Spanish language and say, well, there, there really is no good English equivalent for this, but there's a Spanish phrase that says it beautifully. When we become proficient in Scripture, we no longer have to translate it. We live there. That is our native tongue. We don't just try to speak Scripturees. We see it, 
as our native tongue. So much of the time when Christians are citing scripture, I can still hear the earthly accent. Hmm. It just feels like they've learned it, but they're not yet in it. But to love it and to know it and to say this is reality is becoming proficient in Scripture. So some of us just got to pick it up and read it, man. And some of us have got to learn to... Look, Eric's going to talk about this all next week. I won't take anything. He's going to tell you actually how to do this, aren't you, Eric? He's going to fix it so you guys can say, this is how we read Scripture. Let me move on. I have to learn the habit of a swift obedience. And they said to him, how then did your eyes get open? And the man said, this man they called Jesus, he put mud on my eyes and he told me to wash in the pool of Siloam. And you know what I said to him? I said, Jesus, I don't even know where the pool of Siloam is, man. That is too hard. I've never seen a pool. How am I going to get in the pool? You want me to find my way into something I have never seen? How will I know that's even the pool? I told him, Jesus, that's kind of corny, man. There's, there is no connection between washing and Seeing. There is no scientific connection between washing and seeing Jesus. Hundreds of blind people have washed and they still cannot see. I told him, Jesus, why don't you just do to me what you did to the guy in Mark chapter 8? You just spit on his eyes and then he could see. You want me to wash in a pool? That's not fair. Jesus, you need to do what only Jesus can do. Or I'm going to go on Facebook and say mean things about you. Jesus, Jesus, he's gone. He's long gone, man. You know what he said? He said, he put mud on my eyes and told me to wash. And so I washed. Some things you cannot reach. You just have to be told, and you got to do it. I believe that Jesus has told every single person in this room something. And we've said it's too hard. I can't do that. We've said that doesn't make sense. That's unreasonable. There are a thousand reasons we're still not doing it. But here's what I believe. When you do the thing in front of you, you will start to see the thing in front of that. It's like walking in a cave, a dark cave. You stand at the mouth of a dark cave and you want to see the unseen all the way back in the depths of that cave. And sometimes we think that the way we see it is for Jesus to come to the step of the mouth of the cave and just say, let me tell you what everything that's back there. That's not what obedience is. Obedience is simply the practice of doing the thing in front of you. And when you do that, 
you take that step of loyalty, one step into the cave, guess what? You will start to see things that you never saw before. And when you throw yourself into those things, guess what? You will see what you haven't seen before. We keep thinking that truth is a proposition. Truth is a place. You have to be in it to see it. And there is no way into the truth except to do what he told you to do. So fill in the blank right now. Fill in the blank. Just say, he told me to blank. So I blank. And now I can see. Not everything, but more than I saw a week ago. Third, almost done. Uh, third, stay fully present. Stay fully present. I, um, I have a habit of, um, of, di of uh, dividing my life into things that I like and don't like. I've, I have opinions. I know that surprises some of you, but it's actually true. And so there are people that, are, that seem interesting to me and people that are not that interesting. Not you. Other people. There are things that I want to do and there are things that I do not want to do. And whenever I go into a stretch, like I will be this week, Wait, edit that. Oh, darn it. Um, where I, I'll be out of town. I will be doing something that will be hard and strenuous for me, and I don't fully want to do it. And so in my mind, I have already moved ahead to Friday at noon when I am free at last. Thank God Almighty. I'm going to get in my car, drive five hours, and go to a movie. Now then I'm going to live. And here's what I noticed. As long as I keep dividing my life into things I like and don't like, I miss half of my life. Have you noticed that half of your life is done in places you don't want to be with people that you don't think are that interesting? And as long as you look only at the places you want to look at and try to get through the things you do not want to do, you will miss a full half of your life. And so this week, I've been praying, God, you're going to do things and say things in ways I can't imagine in the next five days. If I stayed here, I couldn't see them. I'm asking you to open my eyes in the next five days. So that's what you'll do. You'll go back and you'll say, there's a bunch of things this week and people this week and deadlines this week that I don't want to do. And I will not divide it into neat categories and look for God only in beautiful places. I will say God is talking everywhere. Sometimes, especially in places through people I do not want to be. Are we good? Are you listening? Okay. I think if we practice these things, we put ourselves in a position to hear God and see God act.